Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick. Feeling, again, a little bit better than last week. So, step by step, bit by bit, I'm getting back to my former self. Or my future self, whatever. <laughs> whatever works best. This show is brought to you thanks to my patrons. If you want to join them and support my work, go to patreon.com slash fatheroderick. You know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. Face it, Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Lots of things happening, but for kids in my country today is a super important day because on this day we celebrate the uh, advent, you could say, of maybe the country's most popular saint, the patron saint of mariners and people on boats, uh, but also the patron saint of children and of the poor. I'm talking about Saint Nicholas. This is a sacred tradition in my country. We all grew up with that. Saint Nicholas is still alive and well and doing what he has always done and why he was also canonized by the Catholic Church, and that is to make sure that people in need are helped. And St. Nicholas, uh, in, in his early days, was known for helping the poor, uh, giving his own possessions and money and gold away, to, uh, saving children. And today he does the same thing in my country. And children from today will, uh, until his, uh, the eve of his feast day, which is December the 6th, uh, they will put their shoes in front of the chimney, or in front of a window or door if you don't have a chimney, uh, and uh, you put in a drawing or a little gift for the horse, because St. Nicholas rides a horse. Actually, he rides his horse over the rooftops uh, to distribute, distribute presents by throwing them uh, in the chimneys of the houses. And so, magically, the uh, carrot for the horse, for instance, will disappear from your shoe, and the next morning there will be a chocolate frog or a little present or a toy. And then on December the 5th, so that's on the eve of the, of the feast day, uh, usually you get bigger gifts. So th this is a winter tradition. I'm going to talk a little bit more about these Catholic winter traditions that are ingrained in the culture of my country and also several neighboring countries. And even in the United States, there are some remnants of these winter traditions, albeit in a, in a slightly modified Americanized form. But we'll get to that later. Uh, the big challenge this year was, of course, to make sure that St. Nicholas being at an advanced age, could enter the country uh, without risk of, of, of getting infected by COVID-19. Uh, because, of course, being this old, he, you know, he would be uh, extra vulnerable. And so they decided to not do what we do every year, and that is to welcome uh, St. Nicholas in one of our cities. And he will normally arrive by boat. According to current legend, he lives in Spain with his helpers and then takes the boat and, and arrives in a harbor or something like that. It's not too hard in the Netherlands to find a river or a, a, you know, a harbor where he can uh, um, uh, arrive with his boat. And then thousands of children would normally be there and it would be 
transmit it live uh, via television. Of course, this year they wanted to prevent that. They don't want people to come out, especially not families and, and grandmothers and fathers. So what they did is they kept it a secret where St. Nicholas would arrive. They told all the children in advance that it would be televised. And uh, they chose a location very close to where I live. This was a surprise to everyone. They did a very good job keeping it a secret. St. Nicholas this year arrived in Susserberg, which is actually part of uh, one of the two parishes where I uh, assist as a priest. Um, and that is the location of the former palace of the, of the queen. Uh, of course, we, we are a, a monarchy. Uh, and the royal family lived for decades in the, a palace in, in, in Susdijk. Um, did I say Suterberg? No, it's Suzdijk. And uh, it's a very nice, big, um, it's not really, it doesn't look like a castle at all, but it's a big house, kind of a white house with, uh, has a bit of, you know, architecturally, it looks a little bit like the Vatican in, in, in the sense that the, the main house is in the center and then you've got these arms with two galleries and it's all painted in white. Um, and when I was a kid, on the Queen's birthday, there would be this, this parade, uh, and people from all over the, over the country would come to Suzdijk, to the palace, and the Queen and the family, the royal family, would uh, be on the, on the steps leading up to the, to, the front, to the front door, to the main entrance, and uh, people would bring gifts or uh, do even presentations like local cultural things, um, and, and they would all kind of parade in front of the royal family. And, uh, and that was just a very uh, cool way, I think, to, to show um, how rich our culture is and how diverse we are, um, as well as uh, giving the royal family an opportunity to, um, you know, be in a safe location. And uh, th they changed that. Th the royal family left that uh, the that building i think it's not even owned by the royal family anymore it's still there it still looks identical to what i was used to as a kid um and also the whole tradition of this parade on the birthday of the queen uh was abolished and was traded in for actually the royal family visiting certain cities and towns in the country and that being televised now what was Really cool was that for St. Nicholas this year, they kind of did a, a, re, a reboot of that tradition of the parade. Uh, but this time it was not a royal family, it was St. Nicholas himself uh, standing there, uh, you know, or actually sitting on a, on a big uh, chair uh, on top of the, uh, like, uh, at the end of the, of the stairs. And then children and people from all over the country uh, walked by and gave presents to St. Nicholas. And I thought it was such a creative idea. And for us older people, it was really great to see some of that, you know, tradition that we grew up with being reinstated and even attributed or, or, or dedicated to, uh, to the country's most popular saint. The reason, of course, that St. Nicholas is so popular and is, has been a, a staple of our Dutch culture is the fact that we are a seafaring nation. And so it's obviously uh, the reason that St. Nicholas, being the patron saint of the, of the people at sea, was also venerated a lot in our country. Plus, of course, 
this the, the need to uh, take care of the poor, um, especially during winter times, made St. Nicholas a perfect fit because that's what he was known for, uh, for his charity. Um, and there are many legends uh, pertaining to uh, the life of St. Nicholas that talk about his, uh, him coming to the rescue of, of poor children and younger people uh, by, uh, by helping them out, even resurrecting children from, from the dead, uh, which, of course, kind of all refers to Jesus himself, like every saint is a bit of a, uh, a reflection, you could say, of what Jesus did himself. And so um, I love that tradition. It's been very controversial uh, the, the, for the past 10 years already, and that's because of the helper. So in the Dutch tradition, there is this uh, group of helpers. They're called Swartepieten. Um, and basically for someone who's foreign to that tradition, these were helpers dressed in blackface, basically. Um, the origin of that is kind of controversial. Some people say, well, that, that is clearly coming from the, uh, the, the history of the Netherlands. Of course, the Netherlands has grown rich and wealthy uh, by exploiting other people, also by, uh, by slavery. Um, and so, uh, according to some uh, historians, that, that is uh, clearly um, a remnant of that, uh, of that dark past of the Netherlands. However, there is also another take, and I think probably both are true a little bit, uh, and that is that these these helpers of St. Nicholas, if you look at other forms of the St. Nicholas traditions, for instance, in, in Germany and the more eastern countries, uh, St. Nicholas is always accompanied by kind of dark figures, uh, scary monsters, um, all symbolizing uh, death and, and sin and kind of the fallen humanity. And St. Nicholas, basically, using them as helpers, shows that as a saint, of course, he was above that. And, and so he, he had power over, uh, over the, 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 the servants of darkness. Um, and so that, according to some, would explain why these uh, helpers for, for many years have been, uh, uh, you know, were painting their faces black. Um, so because of the fact that we live in a international world and the, 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 right now there, there's nothing local anymore everything goes on the internet of course you can imagine that more and more uh, people started to uh, take offense uh, because of that blackface appearance of the of the helpers of saint nicholas and, and so gradually they've been kind of transforming this and 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 changing the appearance of these helpers and so every year you see how that kind of morphs into something that is not offensive, or at least not as offensive as the previous uh, depictions of of, of uh, Zwarte Piet. Uh, so it's it's an interesting cultural phase, and you see this actually everywhere. This is just as true about this particular tradition as many other traditions, even you know religious traditions, liturgy. It's always in motion, always in motion, um, <laughs> it, 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 because our culture our entire um life is constantly changing and and our language is changing and morphing and so is also the way in which we uh, portray these ancient stories and and pass on certain traditions if there wasn't change then uh 
at, at one point it wouldn't work anymore. So I always look at it, some, some people are upset. It's like, we shouldn't, these are sacred traditions. You shouldn't change a thing. Then I'm like, well, from a historical point of view, these things have always changed. You shouldn't be afraid of change. It's, it's just the way our culture works. And it's also interesting because they come up with new ideas and, and creativity. And today was a great example, I think, of, of, of um, continuing the tradition of this visit of St. Nicholas. And at the same, it, but at the same time, uh, um, coming up with a completely new concept in these, you know, dangerous times where the coronavirus is still infecting thousands and thousands of people every week. Things are slightly better now in the Netherlands. We've uh, had some very strict measures uh, coming into effect about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. It's starting to show, uh, so the curve is flattening. Not that much. I was actually hoping for a for a bit of a uh, stronger decline of the number of infections. And of course, because of Christmas, I, I really. Well, I'm not dreading it is what it is, but I, I I really would feel sorry for so many people if they couldn't go to church on Christmas. And right now in my country, the limit is 30 people and you can only have one gathering, one religious gathering per four hours. So imagine Christmas Eve and you can only have 30 people in church and you can only do at maximum two two masses or two celebrations. It means that 95% of the people that normally would come to church on Christmas would be able to celebrate this this important feast of the incarnation of Jesus um, would, uh, would miss out on Christmas. And then, well, of course you can stream it, but you're never going to get 95% of the people that normally would celebrate Christmas in church watching a live stream, especially not on Christmas Eve. I mean, that's such a different experience from being there together. So I'm, I'm hoping that this decline in infections will continue so that maybe, maybe, maybe we can open the church for a, a few more people at Christmas time. And if not, well, then we'll probably have to learn from the way in which uh, they creatively morph the Feast of St. Nicholas into something that is appropriate in these corona times, and we'll have to be just as creative when it comes to Christmas. I hope it's going to work. And with that, it is time for our first topic, which is, of course, coming from the world of movies and TV shows. Theaters, movie theaters are closed now because of these very restrictive rules. From what I've heard, there is a chance that next week they're going to open up again. But... You can open the theaters, but most of the movies that we would normally see around this time of the year are all being pushed back to next year or even beyond that. And I'll talk about one of those movies. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a move vacation. I'm going to give it to you. Fantastic Beasts number three. Uh, the th- so it's the third movie in this new Wizarding World f- uh, storyline that J.K. Rowling wrote, uh, of which we've seen two movies now. The second one featuring Johnny Depp as the main villain. And, well, you probably have already heard this on the news. He's been cast out 
uh, because of his personal uh, uh, situation. Um, so uh, a judge has uh, basically um, rejected his appeal that the, uh, this was about a newspaper calling him a wife beater because uh, there were lots of allegations that he had mistreated his then wife. Um, but apparently there were two parties that were fighting. And so he hoped to win this, uh, this libel s- uh, suit, I guess. But it didn't work out. He, he was, the, the judge um, said that uh, this was not libel. And, well, he had uh, uh, abused his wife. Um, and that was the reason that Warner Brothers decided to kick him out of the franchise. Uh, because, of course, uh, you, don't, you don't want your movie, your, sto- your franchise. This is, a, this is this big business for Warner. Um, they don't want that to be tainted by these, you know, off-screen scandals. Um, and it's understandable. It is, you know, what, what, what is so weird he will still get his salary. So there, when you, when you deal with big stars like that, there are always uh, these stipulations in the contracts that they will get paid no matter what, even if they are cut out of the movie for some reason or there's what for whatever reason uh, they won't be in the movie, they will still get paid. So he he will get millions and millions for for not working. So he shouldn't complain too much. <laughs> It is, of course, pretty dramatic because uh, because in the first movie uh, he was played by another actor, and then he, he, apparently that was just a disguise of of the villain. Now for the third movie, they'll have to recast that role and and also give us a reason or not why there's now an other actor portraying uh, uh, this this villain. And um, they they did that, of course, for several other roles in the uh, during the Harry Potter uh, filming or the original saga, uh, especially, of course, with the role of Dumbledore, who was replaced, I think, in the third movie by a new actor. And that has traumatized me. (laughs) That new actor was nothing like the first one. Such a disconnect. Plus, I thought the first one was much more likable than than the the second actor. Uh, and, and, And so they changed the character. It just didn't work. As much as I love the Harry Potter franchise, and I, I'm so happy that the, that the kids, at least, were all able to complete the entire, uh, you know, what was it, seven or eight movies, um, which originally they didn't want to do. They, they wanted to recast the children at one point, because, of course, kids grow up, but they didn't need to. But, uh, but, but Dumbledore's role really... Um, <laughs> was really I don't know bro- kind of broke that continuity, in my opinion. Um, so, but we'll see. I wasn't too big of a fan of the second uh, Fantastic Beasts movie. I, I liked it, all right, but it wasn't. It doesn't have the charm I think of the original uh, saga. Uh, but maybe they learn from their mistakes. Maybe this third movie is going to be great. I don't know. Apparently, it's going to focus much more on Dumbledore, played by yet another actor. Um, Jude Law, of course, he's a great actor, so maybe that that'll help the movie. Yeah, I don't know. It just I feel that I've got the feeling that the, the these these new movies, these new stories, kind of miss miss a bit. <laughs> sounds cliche. Miss a bit of the magic of the older movies. Uh, uh, maybe also because it's told from the perspective of adults and no no longer kids. And that was something that a lot of children could relate to. 
who who wouldn't dream of 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 discovering that they have magical powers and are invited to to study at the coolest school in the entire world um and and none of that is present in the new movie uh, or in the new in the new storyline um so i don't know what it's, it's and it's a little bit darker it's more drab more more i don't know more grayish uh i still really really love what they're doing with the franchise and i hope that this just like star wars is this can grow into something that will grow way beyond the original intent of jk rowling and uh, there's one um let's say new production that i'm looking forward to even more than the movie and that is this role-playing game this video game that has been announced uh that 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 will allow you to be uh one of the pupils at hogwarts but not i think not in present day but in the 19th century or something like that uh but it still is very much like the the, 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 the sh what they showed us in the trailer very much feels like like the first saga um so looking forward to it um the the other uh let's say consequence of 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 uh of ditching johnny depp for the role of uh what's his name they is that the movie is pushed back another year to 2022 it's again one of the there's so many movies that have been postponed star wars another example we don't know what's next for star wars other than the what they show on disney plus which is by the way excellent the mandalorian season two i love it even more than, than the first season it is so good the quality is is beyond anything that i've ever seen on television um every episode feels like a movie and has the quality the visual quality the tonal quality the, the 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 dialogue is excellent the direction is fantastic camera work everything special effects are are looking better than any other you know star wars uh movie or production that we've seen so um but of course it's not a movie and i think star wars the franchise needs big movies it's you need tenth holes so that you can do all the other TV stuff like derivatives of the main storyline, and everybody is of course wondering what the next story is going to be. And so I was very intrigued by something I read on the news. I think it was two weeks ago that they have already scouted locations in Scotland of all places to film the next Star Wars movie. That was the first time that I heard of, well, I'm not, it's probably not official, but I that I heard news about the new Star Wars movie being in production. And then the most likely person to be at the helm of this new Star Wars movie is New Zealand's director, uh, Taika Waititi, who is... I think right now the darling of, of of the movie industry because everything he touches turns into gold. And this guy has uh, such a unique way of telling stories. Uh, there was this Christmas, this early Christmas commercial uh, that is already posted. It is a Coca-Cola commercial. It's directed by Taika Waititi. 
it's a gem. It is so well done. And it is, you know, in, in just two minutes or two and a half minutes, he tells a story that has a heart that makes you tear up. And at the same time, it's a commercial for Coca-Cola. And I was like, wow, if he can do that emotionally in two or three minutes, imagine what he will do with a Star Wars movie of an hour and a half, two hours. I'm hoping for three hours. It's going to be awesome. Plus, he has, of course, had his own role in uh, uh, by playing IG. What was it? IG sixty six. So this 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 droid in the first season of the Mandalorian. Plus, he has directed uh, and written some of these episodes. So it's clear to me that he is uh, someone who understands Star Wars. But it's also one of the best directors for this kind of for this type of storytelling. And uh, I was a huge fan of Thor Ragnarok. I love his strange humor. There are some other movies that he did that I admire. Not not all of them are are kind of my cup of tea, story wise. But I think that that if he, if he is at the helm of the next Star Wars movie, oh, the future looks bright. It's going to be amazing. Now I can't wait to get more news, and I I'm so hoping we'll get to see this movie before 2022. Although maybe it's good for the franchise if there's a little bit more of a pause between the Skywalker saga and what's next. But as a Star Wars fan, I want it now. <laughs> I want it tomorrow, this Christmas. Oh boy, I'm so grateful that we have the Mandalorian. So at least we have Star Wars during these dark, gloomy months of the winter. Uh, and, and they're extra dark because of corona, because of the, the situation in the world. So Star Wars is more important than ever. I have a little bit more to say about Star Wars, and I want to send you to uh, something you have to watch on YouTube. It's, it's so good. But I'll, I'll push that to uh, a little bit further down the show. Um Star Trek is also going strong, I think, in this third season. The first few episodes were a bit mixed bag. I've already, of course, kind of ranted about the political correctness, I would say, of some of the uh, of, of the choices that they made. Um, but it is, story-wise, is really getting good. Um, and the third and fourth fourth episode were really, I feel like, feels like Discovery is finally hitting its groove, and it's it's... In that respect, very much like any other uh, Star Trek series, it takes a few seasons to find its balance and for the for the crew to, you know, get the right chemistry. But I think it's getting there, and I, and that's exciting. Also, really hoping for the best when it comes to Picard. Uh, that first season was also a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, I can't complain because my goodness, it's a it's 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 a follow up to to the Next Generation. It features Picard. But uh, there were also some flaws, some serious flaws, especially towards the end of the first season. So I'm hoping that the second season will be better. Um, yeah, that's about it. All right, let's move over to the Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! At the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you were afraid to ask. And I don't blame you. <laughs> They're a weird bunch. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? 
And as I announced in the introduction to this show, I want to talk a little bit more about Catholic winter traditions. And I have a few more examples next to St. Nicholas. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. Now, these, these winter traditions are very old. Um, they even, I think, kind of are independent from the, the Christian incarnations of these, of these rituals. You see this in, in many cultures, uh, at least in the, in the wintry part of the world. Um, and, and this has also, I think, a cultural, social background. In the wintertime, uh, the people that suffer the most are the poor. And it makes sense that around these uh, these darker, colder months where nothing is growing, where you can't really be outside, that the people with money and somewhat richer uh, took pity of the poor and came to their rescue and, and tried to help them. You, this is something that, of course, a, a guy like St. Nicholas showed uh, throughout his life, and the tradition still shows this, that he he cares, and it's and it's part of who we are. We're we're we have a heart, we have a soul, we have a conscience, and if we see someone suffer, if that conscience functions, we also feel the need to do something about it. That's I think how God created us, and that's one of the ways in which we resemble Him. Uh, uh, we're made to to the likeness of God, and uh, that doesn't mean that we all look like the way we depict God. He's sitting on a cloud with a beard in a white gaunt, uh, white white robe. Um, it means that we are we're always looking for um, for our neighbor, where we care about the people around us, just like God does. And so these. Um, these traditions have a very important social and cultural function. Um, the poor would, would go to the houses of the rich and they would knock on the doors and get some food or clothes or money. Um, and a lot of these Christian winter traditions, um, I think, kind of incorporated that in the Christian life, encouraging the, the Christians to... Make sure to follow the example of saints and, and continue to help the poor. Um, and this is where traditions like um, the candy on Halloween, where that comes from, this is very much not just, you know, for kids. This was something that before it was for kids was meant for the poor. And it wasn't about candy. Maybe they would get a potato or something like that. But it's it's cool to see that these these traditions that we still um, honor and uh, celebrate in our current culture have this, um, this, this important social function and are a reminder, un unless we forget about that dimension, are a reminder that we have to take care of the poor, especially in dark times. And St. Nicholas is, is one of these uh, traditions, and that actually was celebrated in Catholic churches in the past. Um, the children from poor families would bring uh, their shoes to the church, and then the parishioners would fill them with gifts. So it's just to 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 give these kids something to uh, 
well, to, to be joyful about, uh, even though, you know, the times were dire. Um, there is another tradition in the Netherlands that is also popular in, um, in the region, uh, and that is, or in certain regions, and that is the Feast of St. Martin. St. Martin of Tours was actually um, not from here at all. He was a Roman soldier, uh, lived, I think, in Hungary, in current-day Hungary, uh, in, and uh, lived around halfway the 4th century. So it's a super old story. And so he was a, he was a soldier uh, fighting for the Roman Empire. And one day uh, he sees a beggar uh, outside in the streets. Uh, he's super cold. And what he does is he, he wants to help the, the, that poor man. So he takes his um, mantle and, and his sword, cuts the mantle in half, and gives it to the poor man. He couldn't give away his entire mantle because it was the property of, of, of the army. But he gives half of it. And then the next night he has a dream. And in that dream, Jesus appears to him dressed in that mantle, in that part in half of the mantle. Um, so it's a, it's a beautiful legend, legendary story about this, uh, about this soldier who then, of course... Uh, ultimately ended up a, a, a very good uh, charitable bishop. And the reason that we celebrate uh, the, the, this tradition, and, and the tradition itself looks very much, it's very much very similar to Halloween in the, in the United States. So kids go from door to door, they sing a song, and they get some candy. So it's, it's identical to Halloween, although we don't have the costumes, but we do have the lanterns and everything. Uh, so that shows that it has a, actually a, a common cultural social function originally. Uh, saint Martin himself was introduced in my country by another saint, Saint Villebrot, who actually lived much later in the second half of the Middle Ages, who was an English monk um, who came here as a missionary to convert the Dutch. And he built a small church in Utrecht that he dedicated to St. Martin. He was a fan of St. Martin. And he, he introduced, actually, this saint to the Dutch. And then, kind of, St. Martin conquered the country. And still today, in the city where St. Villebrot built this first chapel dedicated to St. Martin, there's this huge celebration of the Feast of St. Martin, with a with the parade, it's no longer really a, a religious uh, uh, event, but it has been embraced by the entire city. And for my TV show, I interviewed the organizer, current organizers of that parade, and it's so impressive to see that they're still every year uh, are, are dedicating these parades to to the poor, to those in need in the world. And so the original uh, intent of the of the of the of the tradition of the of the you could say the rituals around the feast of Saint Martin are still preserved up until this day, and even people that are not Christian at all get it. They understand it that this is important, and 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 sharing and helping the poor is something you see in every religion. And so it's beautiful to see that that a something from the Catholic tradition has been universally embraced, just like Saint Nicholas is embraced by all the kids. Also, the non-Catholic kids and Protestant kids and Muslim kids and, and atheist kids. 
They all love St. Nicholas. Isn't that amazing? And then there is a third saint that I kind of rediscovered this year, and that's St. Hubert, or Hubertus, also from the early centuries of the church. And St. Hubertus was... Uh, was going out for to hunt on Good Friday. I think I told this exact same story on the walk, so I'm going to keep it short here. Uh, if you want to have the long version, go to uh, uh, to fatherroderick.com and listen to the latest episode of the walk. Uh, but he he went hunting on Good Friday, and at the moment that he's about to kill a deer, he sees that the deer in between his antlers has a crucifix, and and. That, for him, is the moment of conversion where he realizes this day belongs to Jesus. I need to be in church I, <laughs> instead of hunting. And so uh, he converts and becomes a saint. And, so, and St. Hubertus is celebrated uh, uh, because of another legend from from his life where he would give... Uh, at one point, he, he, uh, he meets a, someone, a man who is very sick, uh, and he who has rabies and gives him a loaf of bread, and the man is healed. And so, even today, uh, in in certain parts of the country, at on the feast of Saint Hubertus or Hubert, um, the priest will bless loaves of bread that are then distributed to you've guessed it to the poor. And I've been filming in um, in a parish uh, the other week where they honor that tradition by distributing these uh, small pieces of bread uh, to this not the poor this time but they they the, the the pastor the priest and the other members of the pastoral team went to all the people that work in um, in bars and restaurants and they're all of course uh, heavily uh, afflicted by uh, by the covid crisis because they had to close shop and so the parish wanted to let them know that they're not alone and that the parish thinks of them, especially on this Feast of St. Hubert. So it's another creative way to make these old traditions that are sometimes centuries old work for today's culture, which to me is encouraging to see that the Christian message and the Catholic tradition can be made relevant in a world that has mostly rejected what they perceive to be, you know, the Christian tradition or, you know, it's, I think... If, if you want faith to be relevant, you have to affect the culture to make it relevant. You have to do something with your tradition to, so that people can actually experience the good it does. And that will do so much more than culture wars and theological debates. So that is, I think, what we can learn from these winter traditions. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I'm desperately, desperately trying to meet my Goodreads goals that I set at the beginning of this year, where I vowed that I would read a book, every one book every week. The year is almost over. And I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. <laughs> I really fell off the, the wagon because of everything that happened in the world and the whole corona crisis and just there was nothing normal about this uh, about this year and reading especially if you want to read a lot 
it all depends on a certain, I don't know, a certain, a certain routine. It has to be incorporated in your days, but there were no normal days this year. So gosh, and of course, I'm just coming up with excuses why I didn't meet the challenge yet. However, I'm trying to pick up the pace again and get as far as I can get. I vowed to read 52 books. Well, I'm now, let me update my progress here on this book. Um, here we go. I'm now at 24 books. 24 books. I'm excited. Um, and the book that I read uh, this week is a collection of short stories by Anton Chekhov. That sounds very exotic for me because normally I read science fiction and fantasy and or, or just self-help books or stuff like that. But this, this time I was intrigued because of the fact that these stories were read by Stephen Fry. So I listened to the audio version. And uh, they're based, of course, on a translation from Russian by Constance Garnett and, uh, and originally written by Anton Chekhov. Uh, and I, I love these stories. I love, of course, Chekhov is mostly known for his plays, but his short stories are masterful. And I read some of the reviews on, on Goodreads and on Amazon, and people were complaining like, yeah, this is just a story about a guy who then falls in love with a, with a young woman uh, who is married, and he's married too, and then they basically, it, it, it results in nothing. And then there's this other story of uh, this guy uh, who has a son who's very hungry, and they're poor, and then they got pranked in a restaurant, and, but there is no conclusion. Like, the person was complaining that these stories don't have something shocking happening. And I think that is such an example of how how much our culture is currently dominated by this, this, this I don't know, desire to be surprised or shocked or amazed or like we are always looking for adrenaline, even in literature. And so we, we expect every story, to, especially short stories, to be, to be Roald Dahl stories. Where there's this twist at the end, or like I, I don't know, like some of these, uh, um, uh, like the Dark Mirror television series, where you're watching and there's always something like, oh, I can't believe what just happened, and we're so preconditioned by this current storytelling uh, tradition, which I think is in itself a reflection of our current media culture where where we're always going for the sensational for you know it always has to trigger us and if we're not triggered then it's boring and we're not going to spend our time reading or watching it but what i love about chekhov is the fact that these stories are about nothing it's it's not about the conclusion it's not about learning something but it is about the observation and the way in which he translates these apparently very common stories in words. And I think the English translation was fantastic. Uh, now of course, I can't really judge the, the original Russian version because I don't speak it. But it just flowed so well. And um, I mean, you, sometimes translations are, are recognizable because they're, they feel a little bit clunky. You can tell that the it doesn't, it's like, I have that a lot with Dutch translations. Sometimes when I want to kind of speed up my reading, I read the, like a 
a Dutch version of an, an English book. And I almost always switch back to the English original because the Dutch translation kind of feels clunky. It's like subtitles in uh, on most streaming platforms. I always turn them off or I read English subtitles because there's something about, I don't know, Dutch translations that doesn't feel right. Well, with this, it was really as if these stories were originally written in English. And then you add to that Stephen Fry's incredible narration talent. He is he read the entire Harry Potter saga, and it's the best version. It's really the best version. He does all the voices, but he also has such a compelling way. So I was, I was listening to these stories, and I... At one point, you realize, well, nothing really spectacular is going to happen. But the way in which he tells these stories, you're sucked in. I for forgot what I was doing. I've been cleaning my kitchen, my bathroom, and I don't even remember I did. Because in my mind, I was there in Russia, and there was this poor man who is actually using his uh, horse and carriage to uh, as like a, an old Uber, and he's bringing people to their destinations, and on every ride he tries to tell them that his son has died and he is struggling with that grief. And it just happened like last week, and so he's still completely, <clears throat> I don't know, in the grips of this grief, and yet he needs to work because he needs to eat, and so every customer he tries to start a conversation and nobody is interested. And it's such a sad story. And there's no redemption at the end. He ends up, I'm just going to spoil it, he ends up talking to his horse. <laughs> and the horse doesn't talk back, so that doesn't really help either. But it's, it's just the way in which these stories are told that is so, I don't know, so cool. You, you, it's as if you're watching a painting. Nobody will complain about a painting not having a denouement or <laughs> like a, a super surprise or like... Where's Waldo in this painting by Rembrandt? Why, why don't we have Waldo in there? That would be the equivalent of complaining about Chekhov's stories not having a surprising moment or a, a, a big revelation towards the end or a satisfying ending. These are observations. This is painting with words, and I loved it. And now I want to hear more of those stories. So it's called Stephen Fry Presents a Selection of Anton Chekhov's Short Stories, and uh, you can find it on Audible. I will try to include a link in the show notes as well. I'm still reading a number of other books that I haven't finished yet, so I can't really review them yet. But I'm promising that next week I will have another book review because I need to get through this pile of, of books that I challenge myself to read. I, I'm currently reading The Princess Diarist by Carrie Fisher. It's her last book, the, the book that she wrote uh, and I think she just finished it before she died. Um, and it contains, of course, as you remember from the from the news, um, a story that she had never told before, and that she, that is that she had a romantic affair with Harrison Ford while filming A New Hope. And Harrison Ford at the time was still married. It was not a very good marriage, but still. Um and so it's interesting from that respect. It's, it's, it's like, again, adding a new dimension to the how the Star Wars stories were told. Um, at the same time, it's I've read a number of books by Carrie Fisher. This is the one that I dislike the most. And it's not because of, you know, this, this affair that she had with Harrison Ford. It's just... there. It's 
empty. Her life was pretty empty, has been pretty empty. Um, and of course, she's aware of that. And, and there are some moments where you feel that there is actually still a functioning conscience in her, but she is completely unable to step out of it and to make her life be about, about something. It's all, I don't know, very hedonistic, tragic in a certain way. It feels so much less than, than the character of Leia Organa that she portrayed in the movies. And it's a, a bit disappointing f for um, someone who's always looked up to, to the stories, to the actors that portrayed them. You kind of, and maybe that's a bit naive and childish, you kind of want the actors to live up to the... <laughs> <laughs> to the characters that they play on screen, and that's rarely the case. Think of Johnny Depp, you know, and the, those scandals, and it always shocks me a bit. But it also, well, reminds us of, of the fact that um, stories are there to, well, to lift us up, to give us ideals, but at the same time, there's also this, the reality of our own fallibility, and you, you can never point a finger at someone else without also pointing the other three fingers back to yourself. You know, I can point uh, my, my index finger, but then three other fingers are pointing towards me, and that, that you know, you should always also think about your own inability to realize ideals, and life is all about striving for the best, but also acknowledging that you need forgiveness and that you need every time a new chance to, to begin again. Anyway, I'll talk a little bit, little bit more about uh, The Princess Diarist when I've finished it. It is now time to move over to the next segment. What would it be? Oh, it's going to be about Star Wars again. I discovered something on YouTube that you absolutely have to see if you're a Star Wars fan. And preferably also if you kind of liked or at least have accepted the sequels. If you hate the sequels, then maybe this is not for you, but uh, if you like them, just like me, then yeah, you should watch this. I see aliens. Little aliens from outer space. And how are things in outer Plutonia? How many times have I told you not to wear your space boots in the house? Go to shape, I'm in. You can donate my body to science fiction. Get your suit on! We need you! One of the strengths, I think, of, of the Star Wars franchise is the fan base. And I'm not talking about the complainers and the haters. Um, hopefully, that there will be a time that these people just got get tired and watch something else. But, you know, Star Wars fans. And a, a fan, I, to, to, in my view, a fan can never be negative about Star Wars. You, you may be critical, you may have your certain, you know, things that you would like to see better, but, but there is this fundamental attitude of loving the franchise, loving the stories, taking it for what it is, and, and always hoping for the best. So if, you're, if you truly hate Star Wars, then I don't consider that person to be a fan. It's just by definition not a fan. But anyway, there is this fan edit called The Last Skywalker, 100k special. I'm not sure why it's called like that, but The Last Skywalker, you can look it up on YouTube. And this is a fantastic piece of work, which I think 
um, shows you even better than than most of the trailers and most of the stuff that Disney and Luxfilm has produced itself shows you a fundamental aspect and quality of Star Wars, especially of the Star Wars movies. And that is that in Star Wars, as George Lucas puts, puts it, everything rhymes. You've got the re recurring motives, phrases, even choreography, uh, visual rhyme. There are so many layers in Star Wars that are interconnected and interwoven. It's not super structural. It's not like, uh, for instance, the Gospel of St. Matthew, where you can do a structural analysis and you will see how composed some of these the, the, these parts, these chapters are. Well, there were no chapters when, say, when Matthew was writing down the Gospel. But anyway... Um, you see repetition of words and all that has a function it wants to point you to what's the center what is important which themes do i but that is not necessarily the case in star wars but the rhyme is there it's more like poetry it's very kind of loose but everything resonates with what came before and i think even the sequels with their flaws and the prequels also with their flaws did a great job of of showing that poetry, showing that rhyme of themes. And that is why I can keep watching these movies and every time it's like, oh, this is the first time that I realized that exactly that phrase was also said by Anakin and now it's said by Kylo Ren. And wow, what this person did that made the last Skywalker fan edit was bringing that to the next level. The, 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 the edit is 25 minutes long. And it overlays images and phrases and fragments. And I was looking at that and it's like, oh, this is genius. The way it's edited. But also, it shows the genius of Star Wars itself. It is incredible. If you've even, I think, someone who's very critical about the sequels, after having seen this fan edit, you have to admit how incredibly well-crafted some aspects of these sequels are and how much they rhyme with what George Lucas did with the previous six movies. It is really stunning. What it also does is pull on your heartstrings. There were moments that where I got, I was tearing, tearing up, especially because they, the, 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 this edit, it doesn't tell a story, but it shows you these big themes of Star Wars. It's all about loss and grief and fear and death, and self-sacrifice, and redemption, and it's all there. And it shows you by overlaying all these visual layers and, and, and dialogue. Sometimes you, you will hear a phrase, and it's uttered by Luke Skywalker, by Han Solo, by, and it's all... Oh, this person must have spent weeks, if not months, working on this, and the, 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 the result is fantastic. It's, I, there will be a link in the show notes. I just want to play a, a little bit. Can I click on this? Will it play? I think it will. Um, but I probably have to go to YouTube to play it. Hopefully. It's 27 minutes, 43 seconds long. It starts with uh, Kylo Ren. It actually starts with a fragment on, uh, from, from, from the last movie, The Rise of Skywalker. I want to. I'm scrolling through this. There are even some some fragments of the animated series, which kind of stylistically didn't work for me, but it was still pretty cool. Um, 
the the thing that really was impressive was was the whole this whole segment about Kylo Ren and his betrayal and redemption and shows you that oh, it's amazing. I'm just gonna play, play a little piece of that. So this is Kylo Ren after he's been cured by, healed by uh, Ray. Hey kid. And of course. Take off that mask. You don't need it. Needs no commentary, right? What do you think you'll see if I do? The face of my son. I miss you, son. Your son, he's gone. Your son is dead. No, it's not true. Kylo Ren is dead. Just very, very short example of what this this long 25, 27 minute long compilation does so well. And uh, they they've added some music. I don't know where it's coming from. It's not Star Wars music, but it enhances some of the emotions that you don't really get time for in in the actual movies. Here, and that's another, from a technical point of view, from an editing point of view, and I'm talking here like as an editor myself, it, it, it does a tremendously professional job in, in spinning out some of the emotions by slowing down the, the edits, the story beats, so it has even more emotional impact. That this is also a great example of um, what editing can do to existing materials. This is many, many times. This is more powerful than the movies themselves, even though it it completely borrows everything from the existing movies. But by the way it is edited, it has so much more emotional impact. Sometimes trailers also do this. I remember some of, some of the trailers for. For the sequels were were even better emotionally than than the actual movies, or did more emotionally, and it was a combination of the way in which it was edited, the the the, the, the pacing, and the music, which for many of the trailers was composed specifically for the trailers. And and I was watching the movies and just listening to the beautiful soundtracks that John Williams wrote. But sometimes it was like, I wish they had used the the music from the trailer because it had so much impact. Well. Go watch this. It's called The Last Skywalker 100K Special. You can search for it right now, or you can go to fatheroderick.com and uh, look for the show notes. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device, and it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Better. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. Well, this jingle has never been more appropriate because there was one more thing, and we need to talk about it in uh, at least one more thing for Apple this year, and that was a presentation last week of new computers based on a completely 
revolutionary new design of existing ARM processor. So Apple once more switched from Intel this time to ARM, to their own M1 uh, custom-designed chip. Uh, this is building upon the years that they've been developing chips for uh, their mobile devices, the iPad, the iPhone, and now they're bringing all that knowledge to a new era, I think, for Apple, where they no longer depend on companies like Intel for to provide them with uh, slightly upgraded CPUs. They can optimize everything themselves and do it completely custom-made for their hardware, which is a luxury that PC builders don't have. Now, I was a little bit skeptical when I first heard the rumors that uh, Apple would switch to ARM-powered arm computers because... In the past, Microsoft did the same with Windows. They created this, this super lightweight, beautiful, beautifully ex executed uh, laptop. But the fact that it was, you know, no, no longer carrying Intel processors made it incompatible with like 90% of the software that most people use. There, there's no, no, no Adobe suite, for instance, which is, for me, completely, that's, stops everything. If I can't, work with the adobe suite i can't use that computer uh, so it's it's um uh it's quite a gamble however i think they pulled it off we of course saw another uh covid presentation by apple very well produced still i'm always complaining about the kind of the aesthetics of what apple does it looks way too clean it's oh it's boring for me the the entire presentation that apple does is like tim cook's brain it's kind of it's quality but it's gray it doesn't have pizzazz the only moment that i love was when federici who is i think the best salesman of apple and has a, this this old-fashioned apple excitement about him which none of the other presenters have um uh, when when he shows off this MacBook Air running the the the, the revamped version of of macOS, um, and th there was humor in there. There was like, oh wow, I can't wait to get my hands on one of those computers. But despite the, I think, kind of sterile way in which Apple presented this, what they did was super impressive, and. In a way, it's a repetition of, of, of what they did when they migrated from the PowerPC to Intel. They show us basically a computer that's able to run both the new operating system, which is completely natively coded, of course, in uh, a new language, because it's no longer Intel. But at the same time, they, they built Rosetta 2, which is this interpretive, this basically an emulator for the Intel-based software so that it runs just as well or, in many cases, even better than on the previous generation of Mac computers. That is incredibly powerful. They showed us relatively few specs. There were some graphs that made me laugh because they show us a graph, but there are no tabs on it. You don't know what you're looking at. You just see, well, this red line is taller than the green line, and the green line is a previous generation computer they don't even tell you what processor and then this red line look at how how high how tall that is like yeah well we'll just wait for the uh 
for the computers to arrive and then people can give us some real data because this feels too much like a like a, a car salesman that is uh, like but look at the shiny color of the <laughs> um yeah i just want to know uh, how 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 many gallons of of gas do I need for 100 kilometers or miles? Um, give me the specs. Apple didn't do that. However, they seemingly are super confident that this is going to work. And it has to work because there's no way back. They really ditched Intel. They're not, no longer going to produce any computers with Intel except for the current ones. Um, and I, so I think the M1 processor is, is what they're going to build upon and of course in a few years time and they did that the same with intel um nobody will need the rosetta emulator anymore because most of the apps that people use on the on these new macs will will be native and wow the built-in graphics the efficiency of these new cpus I'm pretty impressed. And you know how critical I've been to, for when it comes to, to Apple's, you know, production line. These, these past few years, it was all slow, mini steps, and every new device kind of felt like the old one, just slightly better. Um, but this was really, I think, doing justice to the one more thing. This is a revolution for Apple. And I think the proof is in the pudding, of course. We'll have to wait and see what these things can do uh, but, but if you, if only for the battery power of some of these laptops, I mean, like 14 hours, 20 hours for a MacBook Pro, crazy. If, and of course that will take another year probably, if Adobe can 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 adapt at least the bulk of their programs, I, I need Premiere. Forget about Photoshop and Lightroom, I don't care about those. I need Premiere, Adobe Premiere. As, as soon as Adobe Premiere runs on one of those MacBooks, I will get one. I will get one of those because it is it, when when you're editing, when you're rendering, it's all about processor speed. I'm currently editing on a PC that I had built. Someone built it for me. I think it was last year. No, it was probably two years ago already. And back then, it was top-notch hardware, very fast memory, fast everything. And yet, in order to uh, compile a half an hour uh, TV show in HD, it takes it takes half an hour. I want, I need faster. And it, it I think that Apple really uh, made sure that they they could take a huge leap forward, and and leave basically the Intel computers far behind them just as they did basically with the uh with the iphone and the ipad that at least performance wise are better than anything on the market now of course software wise and operating system there are still some 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 downsides to it but i think you know when it comes to raw processing power and productivity i think apple has done something spectacular i was really impressed and I'm hoping that maybe one year from now, I'll be editing when I'm back in Rome and COVID is <laughs> a thing of the past. You know, I could just uh, film in the morning and edit it in the afternoon, render it in the evening and then be done with it. <sighs> Looking forward to it. Anyway, that was what I wanted to share with you. If you want to hear more uh, thoughts about the Apple environment, 
uh, about my new iPad, I discovered some very cool things that I didn't have on my previous iPad. Um, make sure to uh, to listen to Father Roderick to the Max, which is the show that you get access to if you support me as a patron. Go to patreon.com slash fatherroderick for more information. Also, on Father, Father Roderick to the Max, we'll talk about winter food. I'll give you some of my favorite recipes. I want to review a fantastic um, augmented reality app that, that shows you everything you wanted to know about Apollo 11. It's fantastic. Also going to explain the three most important liturgical books in Catholic uh, liturgy. I'll uh, give you a brief preview of what I hope one day I will build here live, streaming live. The Lego Coliseum just came out and it is amazing. Um, And I also review a comic book series um, called Star Wars Infinities. All that and more coming up in the in this week's episode of Father Roderick to the Max, go to patreon.com slash fatherroderick for more information. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your time. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Stay healthy. <laughs> and I'll see you next week.